Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. We can't fix what's wrong if we can't talk about it. We can't move the conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. And unless we push the edges of what it means to connect, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. Every month, I invite a fabulous big thinking guest to join me to talk about what it means to be human together. We'll have deep conversations about the big stuff, life, love, and legacy, and how you can foster connection for yourself. Let's start to reconnect the world, one conversation at a time. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. In today's episode, we're talking about inherited family trauma with Mark Willeen. As we discussed in episode six with Dr. Stan Tatkin, our brains are wired to hold on to negative experiences for survival. They become a reference guide for navigating life. But what if we don't know why we're reacting negatively? Mark Willeen is the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco. He's a leading expert in the field of inherited family trauma. His book, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle, is the winner of the 2016 Nautilus Book Award in Psychology and has been translated into 15 languages. I sat down with Mark and we dove into the topic of inherited family trauma and the science behind epigenetics. In this episode, Mark shares where our fears and stress triggers come from and what we can do about breaking the pattern for ourselves and our loved ones. Today's episode is brought to you by Therapy Notes. Therapists can get two months free of Therapy Notes and a free data import after signing up for a free trial by going to therapynotes.com and using the promo code CONNECTFULNESS. And because it relates to the content that we're talking about in today's episode, I thought I'd also share with you that a story of mine was recently published on longreads.com. It very much flows into the story about inherited family trauma and how it has shown up in my own life. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to read it. Without further ado, let's dive in. So hello, I'm back today with Mark Wolin. Mark, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. I'm happy to be here. I'm really um, looking forward to today's conversation. I think inherited family trauma is one of those things that I don't know anybody that can escape it. We all are (laughs) in some capacity working through something. So I wonder if maybe that would just be a really good place for us to begin with talking, defining it, talking about what inherited family trauma actually is. Sure. So, you know, for that, I think I better start with what happens during a trauma. Yeah. So when we have a trauma, um, it changes us. Literally, it changes us. It causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this changes the way our genes function. And that can be for generations. Technically, after a trauma, there'll be a information tag, chemical tag, epigenetic tag that attaches to the DNA and then tells the cell 
hey, we better use these genes, ignore these genes based on what happened. So we have a greater chance of surviving whatever it was that happened. And then the way the genes are affected, um, that changes how we act or feel. For example, we can become reactive to situations um, that are similar um, to the original trauma, um, even if that trauma was in a past generation. So again, we have a better chance of dealing with it in this generation. And then these gene changes are, um, that's what gets transmitted. So basically we're walking around with a um, stress response that may not have started with us. It might be our parents or grandparents' reaction to their trauma. I'll give you an idea. If our grandparents um, came from a war-torn country. Can I help you out here for a minute? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I grew up um, the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. Uh, And so from probably the age of, I don't know, three, four years old, I remember sitting on my grandparents' lap and hearing stories. And I'm imagining, you know, this is the setup, right? It goes back probably a lot earlier than hearing the stories. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also part of, you know, why I'm so interested in this work. This was my thesis when I was in grad school. It's the work that I'm diving into in relational work. But I think that this is just a really good setup, perhaps, too, for what we're talking about. Oh, exactly. So, you know, people, that's even one of the questions. Are yeah. we affected because we heard the stories? What if we didn't hear the stories? We're well, affected, too. We're affected, too, um, <laughs> because we've inherited um, the stress response. Okay, let's use your grandparents. If they came from the Holocaust, so mm-hmm. there's people being rounded up in the square and people being shot and bullets going off and they're saying terrible things. Your grandparents, they're going to develop a skill set to help them deal with what's happening, sharper reflexes, quicker reaction times, Um, And that's what we're going to inherit. But to help us survive their trauma, um, we're going to inherit the same skill set. But the problem is, is we can also inherit a stress response with a dial set to 10. And we're prepared for this catastrophe, which never arrives because we're not born in Poland or Russia or Germany. We're born here in the States. But in our body is that hyper arousal, that hyper vigilance, that quick reaction to terror that's theirs, that's now inside us. And here we are born with uh, fears and feelings um, that aren't exactly ours. <laughs> we think right. they're ours. Um, and that's We're the problem. Experiencing them like they're ours. Right. We don't make the link that, um, gee, I'm... Um, hypervigilant when I hear a loud noise, when I see men in uniforms or when there's a lot of people lined up. Um, We're not even imagining that that's other than us because people will say, well, I'm just wired that way. That's how I am. (laughs) And I think what I'm in this world to do is say, wait a minute, not so fast, not so fast. How do you know that this is really yours in the first place. Right. This, you know, just to illustrate it, I think this is a probably a pretty good personal story of mine that when I was back in my early twenties, I remember going to meet my mother and my sister at the mall for Black Friday, you know, the big shopping day. And I just had such a panic attack. I couldn't go to a crowded place. Right. 
you know? And it was like, I remember that moment where I was like, nope, not going. (laughs) You know, it's funny in my book, I talk about a guy with a similar experience. He couldn't go anywhere new. So here he is, he's in a family. They can't go on vacations. They can't even go to the town next door. They can't go to a new restaurant. And the trigger language, the trigger emotion, the trigger words, the trigger feeling was going somewhere new. Let's hold on to that for a minute as I tell the story. So I said, so what happens to you when you go somewhere new? And I'll call him Steve for our talk, Rebecca. Um, What happens, Steve, when you go somewhere new? He goes, well, I go into a panic. I begin to black out. I start to faint. I just black out. And what we learned in working together is that 74 members in his family died in the Holocaust, which means they were forced outside of their home to somewhere new where they were murdered. Mm. So for him, this feeling of going somewhere new is akin to being murdered. This is one of the things I love about your work is how you hold language, how you hold words. Mm. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up because it's not just uh, when a trauma happens, there's not just a chemical change in our DNA, but there's a clues left behind, clues in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences um, that live in our vocabulary that are the result of these traumas. And those words or sentences, they allow us to, when we start tuning in and become conscious of them, they allow us to create linkages. Exactly. So, you know, we, when we learn how to follow the, this language, now the language, what I call core language, I also call it trauma language. It's both verbal and nonverbal. When it's verbal, it's these sentences like, um, I'll harm somebody or I'll be killed, or I'll go crazy, or I'll do something terrible. These sentences I find are generational. They live inside of us, but they're actually, they have their origins in the family history. But there's nonverbal language too, and that's the anxieties, um, the depressions that begin when we reach a certain age, maybe age 30, which was the age grandma became a widow, the age our parents divorced, um, the age our grandfather died in the Holocaust, these become trigger ages. So we have to look for um, not just uh, ages, but events or milestones that take place in our lives that set off these triggers. Um, For example, destructive behaviors will start happening or symptoms will begin. Um, sometimes when we reach a certain age, as I talked about, but also when an event happens, for example, um, we go to have uh, children, for example, and all of a sudden we become depressed, or we get married uh, or partner up, and all of a sudden our anxieties kick in, or we go to have a child, and all of a sudden that's a trigger. Or we get rejected by a partner for, and it takes us, you know, the grief is insurmountable, but what it does is it takes us to a much deeper grief, perhaps a break in the attachment with our mother, but it shows up when our partner leaves us. So there's all these triggers that in my work, I'm looking for the event 
or the age um, or the, you know, the, what would be a normal event. So your anxiety started when you got married. So your anxiety started when you went to have a child. So your anxiety started um, when you moved to a new place. So your anxiety started when you got rejected by a partner. See, these are the things I look at. Where this anxiety, this depression, this symptom, this destructive behavior, where and how exactly it began. These are the things I look for. Because these symptoms, these anxieties, these depressions, these are the signs that there are potentially linkages. Exactly. You know, people say, well, how do we know if we have inherited trauma? And I say, well, um, we can be born with a fear or an anxiety or a depression that we've had our whole lives, and we don't separate it even from ourselves. We just think it's part of us. That's true. However, there are signs that we can experience a fear or an anxiety or a symptom that strikes suddenly when, as I said, when we reach a certain age or hit one of these events. I'll give you an example. There's scientific research behind this too, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's definitely scientific research. But just to tell a human story, um, I one time worked with this woman. All that she knows, she was struggling she, with panic attacks. She was consumed with anxiety. And I said, let's break that down. Let's start to look at this anxiety. And she said, where, how, what? <laughs> she was just shaking. And I said, well, let's begin with when it began. And she said, I don't know, six months ago. And I said, what happened six months ago? She goes, well, I don't know. That's when I got pregnant. So what she's telling me now is her trigger begins during pregnancy. pregnancy. And mm-hmm. I said, so let's, what was the worst fear? What were you thinking when you got pregnant? And she said that I could harm this baby. And I said, well, have you ever harmed a baby? And she said, no, no, nothing like that. And I said, has anyone in your family ever intentionally or unintentionally ever hurt a baby? And she was about to say no. And she said, "Um, no, oh, oh. And all of a sudden, the trigger event hit her. Um, Her grandmother, when she was a young woman, you know, newly married with a new baby, lit a candle. And the candle caught the curtains on fire and the house caught on fire and the baby was upstairs sleeping and she couldn't get the baby out. She tried and the baby ended up dying. Um, And then the woman told me, but we were never allowed to talk about this, which is exactly how these triggers get anchored when we're not allowed to speak about them. Um, They can get unanchored, unblocked when we do speak about them. Absolutely. You betcha. In fact, there's all this science now that we can, oh gosh, I have to weave in so much science to tell this, but um, they, well, well, I will. Um, I, please do. This is where I think my listeners and I geek out. So it's totally welcome. Okay. Let, let me geek for a little bit. Yeah. So it's not just um, this idea that we have epigenetic tags when there are chemical tags that attach to our DNA when something happens. Scientists have long suspected that something like this was going on, but they didn't really know for sure until the evidence started coming out about, oh, I'd say 13 years ago. There's a neuroscientist out of Mount Sinai Medical School named Rachel Yehuda, and she's kind of the first one um, 
in the work that we do who discovered this accidentally by making the connection that Holocaust survivors and their children shared the same trauma symptoms, specifically the low levels of cortisol, the stress hormone that gets us back to normal after a stressful event, the same symptoms as their parents. So the children have the anxiety, the depression, the PTSD, the low cortisol as the parents who experienced the Holocaust. And so then she is, she's the one that did that study uh, around 9-11 with mothers who were pregnant at or near the World mm. Trade Center when it was attacked. And she finds out that the babies um, who were in utero at the time, uh, if the mother went on to develop PTSD, the baby developed PTSD. For example, these babies were smaller for the gestational age. They had 16 different genes that expressed differently than babies who weren't at the World Trade Center when it got attacked. And then she, oh, about two years ago, discovered that survivors and their children share the exact same gene changes in the exact same region of the very same gene, the FKBP5 gene, which is a gene that's involved in bipolar disorder, depressive disorders, stress regulation. And she discovered that the, um, the survivors and their children shared the same gene in the same region, in the same place, in the same gene, uh, which suggests that these traumas are heritable. Um, she has this line I mentioned in, in my book, which I love. Um, you and I are three times more likely to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder if one of our parents had PTSD. And then as a result, we're like, we're likely to struggle with anxiety or depression. So that's the studies with humans, and they can show it for two generations. But Mark, could you tell, you know, one of the things that, um, there's so much here, I know it's going to be hard to pack everything into this interview, but there's a few pieces that I'm thinking of. And, you know, one of the things that always blows my mind, and every time I say it, it kind of like re- but the fact that when our mothers were inside of our grandmother's womb, the egg that goes on to make us existed there. And there's some kind of tie, correct, between what was happening for our grandmother then when she was pregnant with our mothers. That so I believe that's true. Now, um, most of the research right now is looking at the effects of sperm in the male line because it's much easier to track the sperm's influence on the embryo because basically the sperm gives the chromosomes and they can track that. Whereas with the egg, it's much more difficult to track the egg's influence on the embryo because of exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. There's so many different factors. And one of those factors is just like you said, the female line, the egg line stops splitting when our mom is five months a fetus inside our grandmother's womb, which means the essence of us in the form of an egg is actually located physically, biologically, inside our mother's fetus womb 
when she's five months a fetus, which is now lodged inside grandma's womb. So you could say that what would the implications be of three generations of a shared biological experience? And that is always, just like you, I've been amazed by that idea, just that, that we're in there when grandma's in the Holocaust, when she's in hiding, when she's leaving, when her father's killed, when her brothers and sisters are killed, we're in her womb. And then the effects biologically of her depression, her shutdown, her terror, um, that has to impact us in some way. I mean, even if we add to that Bruce Lipton's work, right, where he says mother's emotions biochemically alter gene expression by being communicated through the placenta. So when we put his work together with that work, um, yeah, that's like a strike. Yeah. And then there's these other components too, right? Like if when your mother is pregnant with you, something happens within her life, like she splits from your father or um, she experiences some kind of grief or something big happens at that point. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. My, you know, a lot of my book, I talk about attachment. You see, it's interesting. Um, I have begun as a uh, generational therapist, an inherited family trauma therapist, and have moved more toward much more into attachment because of these events that you're talking about. Because the effects of um, what happens early in utero with our mom are, again, heritable or they affect us. We're influenced by these events. Because, you know, I start in the book, I mention the work of Thomas Virney, who wrote a very famous book called The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. And I mention the work of David Chamberlain and the work of Bruce Lipton. And all these guys um, talk about um, how attunement has to begin at conception. But that wasn't the thinking right. several years ago. Right. So if mom is stressed, if she is postpartum, or let's go even earlier, if dad and she are fighting, if one of them is drinking, if they're splitting up, if one of them is cheating, if she has security issues, if she didn't get enough from her mother, if uh, they're going to break up, if she's not sure she's going to keep the baby. And we're um, putting a lot of emphasis here on mom, but we're doing that for a really biological reason. Well, our first relationship is with mom. Yeah. Our first, biologically, our first relationship is inside mom. So really, our first, in talking about relationships, that's our first. Right. That's our first relational experience, is the communication, the extensive communication between fetus and mother. And we have to look at the effects here. And it isn't to say moms are more important. What it's to say is that relationship is earliest. And if she's the primal care, primary caregiver, then again, the effects of dad are felt tertiary in a sense through mom's experience with us. So if dad and she are fighting, um, she's the factory through which that fighting is felt, is felt correct. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it, it, this is also making me think of many clients I've worked with over the years who um, have been adopted. Oh, sure. And then they come to see me for some relational support. Sure. So there can be very successful adoptions and our clients can do quite well. However, there's still that event, that event of imagine for the adopted child in utero. There's not a hippocampus that's functioning that early, but there's an amygdala that's functioning that early. And imagine the adopted child hearing the energy of, I can't keep you. I have to give you up. I can't keep you. I won't be able to love you. And then, so the child is experiencing mother's emotional pain over the, I can't keep you. I'm giving you away. This will hurt me. I hope it doesn't hurt you. And then there's the biological break where she, the baby's born. And now mother turns the baby over to the, the nuns or the nurses and now there's that break where the, all that the baby knew, the smell, the sounds, the inner experience is now all taken away. It's akin to withdrawal, drug withdrawal. Right. I talk even, about that in the in book. a perfect situation where babe goes from biological mom to adopted mom's arms. Even in Correct. The even in the perfect situation, we still might have to look at what's physiologically true that we've been taken away from that energetic flow and handed to another energetic flow. Right. And so we can often see these kinds of things emerging in our adult lives, in our adult relationships, in our adult love relationships, or through when we go on to have children and through parenting. Oh, clearly. Sometimes we might do quite well, but the trigger is relating to another person at the same time. Mm-hmm. tear, you know, a love relationship and all, and all of a sudden all our stuff, you know, unquote, all of our stuff starts arising because our stuff begins to come into motion when we're in a, an important relationship with a partner. I say this practically in every chapter in my book, but what's unresolved early with our mother gets projected onto our partner. For example, all the stuff, all the ways we felt loved or not loved, seen or not seen. One of the ways I describe it in the book is mom was first in line to take care of us. And now we leave home. And then second in line to take care of us is the partner. And all of that stuff of she didn't see me gets aimed at the partner of you don't see me. She didn't hear me you don't hear me. She couldn't love me. Hey, you're not loving me. She didn't nurture me. Hey, I'm not feeling you as being nurturing. So all of that stuff gets aimed at the partner. We don't mean to do it. It just is. It just happens. And so these are what you often call entanglements. Yes. And, you know, I started to talk about the human science, but I feel this is a good place to talk about my science. I'll tell you why. So we can see patterns in humans for two generations, but we can't get a generation for 12 to 20 years. And remember, I just said that the science is only about 12 years old, in a sense. So we don't have that third generation yet. 
with um, humans, but with mice, we can get a generation in 12 to 20 weeks. And what's more, mice share over 90% of the gene experience as humans. For What that means is over 90% of our genes have counterparts in mice. Mice have counterparts with over 80% of those genes being identical. So we can get um, we can cause adversity, unfortunately, to baby mice. We can't do this to humans, but we can cause adversity to baby mice and then look at the effects. And one of the main ways they cause adversity is by um, separating baby mice from their mothers. In fact, um, in my book, uh, I talk about, uh, on page 35, I talk about uh, these baby mice, that, oh gosh, I'm going to try to remember it. I don't have one of my books in front of me, but I'm going to quite a, try to paraphrase myself. I'd pull it uh, out, but I just listened to your book on Audible, so oh, I'm going to be hard okay. for me to pull it out as well. <laughs> that's okay. I think I can paraphrase it pretty well. But in one of these such studies, they separated um, male mice from their mothers for a very short time, for up to two to three weeks during the first two weeks of life is all. That's it. And what they noticed is the mice went on to develop symptoms that were similar to what we would call depression in humans. Uh, The symptoms seemed to worsen as the mice aged. And strangely, some of those male mice didn't exhibit the symptoms themselves but appeared to epigenetically transmit these behavioral changes to their female offspring. Huh. The female, which would be like dads going off to war, coming home and having children, and their daughters carrying dad's shaking, dad's trembling, dad's anxiety, dad's depression, dad's shutdown. But not their sons. No, no, sons too. But in this one study, they... So unfortunately, um, inherited family trauma is an equal opportunity employer. Right. So moms can transmit traumas to sons and daughters, and fathers can transmit trauma to daughters and sons. It's an equal opportunity employer. But in this one study, I think it was by Isabelle Monsui at the Brain Research Institute in Zurich, um, they saw that some of the sons could pass it to the female offspring. So, but there's enough studies that show that it can pass both ways. In fact, one of the studies, um, oh, let me tell a few of these. They're kind of important, um, especially because we're talking about relationships. So Isabel Monsui, she would take the mice and separate them for just a short time, uh, you know, to from their mothers two to three hours a day for the first two weeks of life. And then she could observe the changes for three generations. Well, here's what was interesting. She took some of these mice that were separated from their mothers and dropped them in a bowl of water just to see what would happen. So the mice who were not separated, they were swimming like crazy to get out of this bowl of water. But the mice that had been separated from their mothers, they kind of floated and then drowned. They had inherited the freeze response. And by being dropped into the trauma of water, they froze and didn't swim and didn't try to get out of the um, water and eventually drowned. 
where the untraumatized mice were um, trying to get out of this pool of water. Now, what she did is she said, okay, there's changes in the brain and the blood and the sperm. Let's inject some of the male sperm into the females, into the female egg, fertilized egg, and, and let's see what happens in the second and third generation. And you had the same thing. They would drop these mice into bowls of water, these depressed mice into bowls of water. And in the second and third generation, these mice would float, these pups and grandpups, and that's us, children and the grandchildren, mm-hmm. inheriting the freeze, the fight, flight, or freeze response. Right. Now, there's an interesting part of this. She goes on to do a newer study where she reverse, she's the one who first tells us that trauma symptoms can be reversed. She does a study where she takes some of these traumatized mice and she puts them in positive, low-stress environments. And she finds out that not only do the mice's behaviors improve, that they're less depressed by experiencing constant positive experiences. She finds out that the fearful epigenetic signature is less likely to be passed down to the following generations, which is awesome news. This is really, really good news that we can reverse trauma symptoms by positive experiences. We can also um, reverse human trauma through positive experiences, which I'll get to later in our talk because it'll be significant. But first, I want to make sure that we did all the trauma diligence, our due diligence. Yeah, I think we need that foundation in order to understand where we're going. Yeah. In fact, there's this one mice, I think I'm going to tell it, this one mouse study that's done in Emory Medical School in Atlanta, where they took male mice and they made them afraid of the cherry blossom scent. Oh, I love this one. Yeah. They, the mice, every time they smell the cherry blossom scents, scent, they shock them. And then they look at the first generation and they see that there are changes in the blood and in the brain and in the sperm. And Brian Diaz has an idea um, of using that sperm to impregnate some of the female mice that weren't shocked and to see what happens. Because here's what he saw in that first generation. In that first generation, he saw that there were not just changes in the sperm, but changes in the brain, that the brains had enlarged areas where there were greater amounts of smell receptors, um, that the mice would then be able to detect the cherry blossom scent at lesser concentrations. Thereby, they'd be able to protect themselves because there is more material in their brain more genetic material in their brain to protect them. So he said, well, this is interesting. Their brains had already in that first generation epigenetically adapted to protect them. So let's take the sperm, let's impregnate the females. And here's what he saw. The pups and the grandpups in the second and third generation, they became jumpy and jittery just by smelling the smell. In other words, they had inherited the stress response without directly experiencing the trauma. Hmm. Now, here's the killer. He's also one of the people that's doing this new research, Brian Diaz, in showing the traumatized mice, we can untraumatize them. We can reverse trauma symptoms in mice 
and we can uh, help them not to pass down the symptoms to the following generation. So he took those traumatized mice that were shocked and then they were, uh, you know, that smelled the smell. And he now says, okay, what happens if we keep putting them in the smelly room with the good cherry blossoms in, but not traumatizing them? So what happens is he put them into uh, low stress environments by putting it into the same cage with the smell, but not shocking them. And then he finds out that they stop getting jumpy and jittery. Their behaviors begin to improve. But he also begins to show that there is less DNA methylation in the sperm that will be passed down, protecting the second and third generation, which means, wow, I mean, big wow, we can reverse these symptoms. So our DNA has a plasticity to it. Absolutely. That's what they're finding out, Mm -hmm. that we can, and how we do it as humans is we've got to have a positive experience. And it strikes me that there's another component here, because in order to reinforce and to focus on that positive experience, we also have to know, have to have a deep enough understanding of where this comes from. In other words, we need to know what kind of to reprogram. You know, I believe that's true. People would say we don't need to know, we just need to heal. We, you know, for example, if we were practicing mindfulness 24-7, we wouldn't need to know. We'd have a brain that's producing a lot of positive mm-hmm. uh, experiences. And we'd have a prefrontal cortex, which is thicker and stronger. Um, uh, you know, we know mindfulness shrinks the amygdala and thickens the sure. prefrontal cortex. So we don't necessarily need to know, but I'm of the camp that says it sure does help. You know, it sure does help to know what's happening and why we're hypervigilant and why we're getting anxiety and why we're depressed. I imagine that we can probably heal in many ways through ongoing positive experiences without knowing. Knowing may speed the process of healing. I'm with you, Rebecca. I I feel that when we know how we're hooked, Mm -hmm. it's easier to get unhooked. Yeah. So, you know, and basically what the neuroscience is showing us, uh, we've got to change the brain stress response. Whether we've inherited it, Rebecca, or it happened to us in utero, or it happened to us as children, or it happened to us as adults, we need to change the brain stress response. And to do this, we need to have an experience powerful enough to override that trauma response, that stress response. Yeah. You know, and, in, in one of my do- last interviews, I was talking to Dr. Tatkin, and he was talking about neurologically how we're so wired for a negative bias. Oh, that's absolutely true. We have, I talk about this in my book, the negativity bias. Our brain likes to remember what's negative. It doesn't just like to. Two-thirds of our amygdala is scanning for threats. So we are oriented towards what's negative to protect ourselves. It's in survival. Fact, for survival, right. We're oriented toward what helps us survive, which is remembering the negative experiences of childhood. Many of us, of course, don't remember that our mother read to us, that our mother changed our diaper, that she fed us. We just remember she never held me. She screamed at me. She was never there. You know, I like to say, are you sure never? Are you sure she didn't hold you? 
Are you sure she didn't hold you when she fed you or changed your diaper? And people, well, I don't remember it. Well, of course we don't remember it because that stuff was early. We don't have a hippocampus that comes online fully till about age three when it makes its connections to the prefrontal cortex. But um, she did hold us. (laughs) She had to have. So we got fed. But when we, you know, going back to these positive experiences, um, and most of us will say the same thing. We just need to practice these positive experiences, these new feelings, these new sensations that are connected with these experiences. And they can be experiences of receiving comfort or support where we believed there was none. Or they can be feelings of compassion or Gratitude, Oprah was always telling us to have a gratitude practice, but she didn't tell us why. Or, or you know, it's these these feelings feed the prefrontal cortex. Um, feelings like loving kindness, generosity, basically anything that allows us to feel strength and peace inside. Um, you know, when we have this connection to this experience, um, and we let it be meaningful to. Really, that's what I tell my clients. I say. Can you let this experience be meaningful, have meaning for you, and then practice this meaningful um, lying beneath this picture of your mom who's passed away or uh, integrating this young fragmented part of yourself with your sensation, breath, and awareness, physically touching your heart where you feel that little child part lives inside you Mm -hmm. and breathing into your heart and saying a sentence like, hey, you're safe, I've got you. Yeah. And doing that six times a day, letting, letting that experience be meaningful. You know, the idea, Rebecca, is to steal traction away um, from that stress response and, and engage other areas of the brain. You know, we're talking the yeah. prefrontal cortex where we can integrate the new experience. Our brains can change. I talk a lot with my clients about how we need to learn how to reparent ourselves. And I think this is in many ways, we're talking about the same thing. We when are. I'm, yeah. We are. We are. You know, we, when traumas happen, so I'm going to say a third thing. The first thing that happens, traumas happen and we have a chemical tag attached to DNA. Traumas happen and language starts to fire because we know the trauma centers, we know the language centers get compromised during a trauma. And the exactly what happens uh, disperses. The hippocampus gets disrupted. So we, it doesn't get named or ordered through words. Yeah. Uh, so we can't really name what happened. And without the language centers, without the language, this, these traumas, they, they disperse into the body as fragments, fragments of images, fragments of emotion, fragments of body sensation, fragments all kinds but also fragments of us it becomes fragmented yeah we split off and become fragmented so when a trauma happens there are bits of us parts of us that need to be weaved back together Um, and one of the ways we weave is we breathe we breathe this part of us back together and each time we breathe consciously into this fragmented part we weave it back into the whole of us And that's how we come back together, as you're talking about, reparenting ourselves by, you know, I like to say combining Mm -hmm. breath, sensation, and awareness, something that's been around for 5,000 years in yoga, breathing, weaving together, intertwining breath, the sensation in our body, and the awareness of, I'm here, 
I've got you. I'll breathe with you until you feel safe or I'll hold you so our body doesn't have to hold so tightly. You know, or, there's one part in your book where you say something along the lines of it's, it's your job now. It's your job to reconnect with the love that you felt for exactly. your mother or whomever when you were small. Because they're, we're the ones doing the work. Our parents can't do the work. You know, our parents can't do the work because they're not. <laughs> it's us. Yeah. It's your responsibility it, now. It's not your parents. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I always say to have a good relationship with another person, we need to have two things. We need a good relationship with our parents, even if that relationship was crap. At least we need a good relationship with the, our parents internally. Uh, and that means we're undefended and tender toward them in our thoughts, even if we can't do it in real life. Um, that we can take in um, our mother's nurturance, her tenderness, her care, that we can soften when she holds us or comforts us and instead of reacting and tightening and hating her. And, and also that we don't reach out to comfort her. That's a no-no. Um, as children, we receive. But many of us learned, oh, mom couldn't give. So the way I get is I comfort her. You get it? Yeah. Of course you get it. Of course you of course. get it. Yeah, I mean, that's so one of the notes I had written down right. to talk about with you. So many of your clients <laughs> do it. So many of your clients, so many of us do it. We, we need a bond because the bond was broken. Mm -hmm. So we bond by, by, giving. By, by giving rather than receiving. And, and this is why it sometimes is so hard for some to receive. Exactly. I always tell people being in tune with our parents means, hey, we're in tune with what they could give as well as what they couldn't give. Yeah. So that means, yeah, my mom, she wasn't very good at mothering and she wasn't able to do this. And, you know, she mostly was in pain, but boy, I love her. And nowadays I can take in her nurturance. That's a healthy attitude rather than I hate her guts and I'm never going to talk to her again. <laughs> you know? There was a section in your book in the beginning where yeah. you're just starting to dive into some of the exercises. It might've even yeah. been one of the first exercises if I'm remembering. And you're talking about close your eyes and imagine your mother or your father standing in front of you. And how much of their love are you able to let in? Yeah, yeah. I think that might be, even be the first or second one. And, yeah. you know, I'm kind of talking about that pathway that comes to us through the parents, to the grandparents, to the ancestors. And I'm kind of looking to see how in the book my client's pathway or the reader's pathway is. Uh, because if we throw away uh, our parents and all that comes from behind us, we've kind of clogged up the machinery. Right. Um, you know, so one of the things I say, as I was saying, we need to have a two things to have a good relationship with another person, a good relationship with our parents, at least internally, at least inner image. And, and one the of second, the things that you had said there that really struck me, and I think I've been using it with a lot of clients, is even if we can kind of start collecting a cupful of, of something from them, even just in little drops, even if it's not like washing oh, over us. Wow. Thank you right? for remembering that. Yeah. I like to say that sometimes if our parents are a faucet and they flow at a hundred percent, but our parents only flow at 2%. If you put that cup under the two streams, the two little streams and you let it fill those, you could still fill your cup. It's just your parents were limited in the resources that they could give to you. They could only do it by giving you money or cooking you food, you know, but right. you, but you let those two things look like love rather than saying, no, what looks like love is if they talk to me. Well, no, they can't talk to you. 
But what they can do is maybe they can just cook or, or, you know, whatever. But just saying those, I wanted to get back to this thing that to have a good relationship. Yes, a good relationship with our parents is helpful. But we also, because we've been talking about it, have to have a good relationship with ourselves where we have a solid, stable, but resilient core inside of us. You know, where we have a self. We also have a witness that can observe when we get triggered. We understand where those triggers come from. We know how to have a a boundary that respects what our body's telling us. In other words, you know, we know our yes means yes. And our our no means no. Our no means no, right. And we know how to take breathing space when we get into trouble with our couple. You know, when we're in our relationship, we know how to say, hey, I just need a minute to take some breathing space. We know how to take the right distance because it's important to be able to take time apart if we're triggered. Because if we're constantly giving, if we haven't learned how to receive, this stuff gets messed up. These messages within us get messed up. Absolutely. We've got to recognize our patterns of shutting down and distancing. We need to be able to trace them back. And then we've got to have the resources to pull ourselves out of fragmentation. Instead of losing our boundaries or throwing them away or taking care of somebody else or giving ourselves away or imposing a defensive strategy that deadens us like tightening or shutting down, we learn how to take space and say, hey, I I don't want to distance from you. I want to stay close to you. So I need to take a few minutes and breathe and catch my breath over here. Because when we're available to ourselves, we can be available to another You know, yeah. There was something you said in your book, if I might quote you to yourself. You may quote me, absolutely. (laughs) You said, when we're constantly looking outside of ourselves, it can keep us from knowing when we hit the target that something valuable can be going on inside us. But if we're not tuning in, we'll miss it. Yeah. And this is exactly what you and I are talking about, this idea of being able to stay embodied. Mm -hmm. That's what we have self so we have a core and this is how the inherited family trauma is the thing that gets in the way at times of us staying connected to that core yeah yeah, or early trauma sure so we yeah inherited family trauma right both right if we let's say we have a break in the attachment with our mom and anything that looks like not being listened to or not being comforted um throws us into um pain and then it throws us into a defensive response. Then we're, gonna, we're not going to see any target because we're not going to stay inside our body. We're going to leave our body, tighten dissociated. up, dissociate, mm-hmm. fragment, dissociate, exactly. And we're not going to see the target that could be right in front of us, which could be a resource. We're going to see, you know, uh, what's that saying? If you're a hip surgeon, everything looks like a hip. You know, <laughs> if you only believe that you're going to be mistreated, the way your mom mistreats you, you'll find it. And this is where you say, if you have challenges with your partner, don't automatically make the assumption that they're about your partner. Right. Oh, thank you for reading my book so thoroughly. (laughs) Yes, because exactly. Don't make the assumption that um, your partner, we like to blame our partner, what we do. You know, this is is so funny. Um, You know, if we're entangled with one of these early events or we've inherited an event, meaning the biological residue of a trauma, which is showing up in our body as all this shutdown or whatever, 
Um, if we're entangled or we have a loyalty to take care of our mom or dad, um, if we, we're entangled and we can't see it, we're likely to struggle in our relationships. And then we're going to repeat these family patterns of neediness or mistrust or anger or abuse or withdrawal or shutting down or, or leaving someone or being left. In. And then, of course, we'll blame it on our partner. <laughs> we'll blame it on our partner. You do this to me. You make me do this. And we might see these kinds of patterns showing up in multiple relationships, whether it's historically, like all of our love relationships in a row, or it's with our partners and also, of course, with our parents, and maybe also somewhere else, like a professional relationship or showing up in other ways. Oh, absolutely. You know, sometimes I say that 70% of a couple's problems have nothing to do with the couple, that it comes from our family of origin. You know, for example, let's take the analogy of grandma or the situation if grandma dies in childbirth, the women in the system could be afraid of getting married because if they get married, they could have children. And if they have children unconsciously, they could be afraid they'll die. Or the men in that same family could be afraid to commit to a partner or because committing could mean their sexuality could cause harm, could cause death. Right. Like grandpas did. I don't know if it's maybe just bittersweet, is that sometimes we can't see the stuff head on. We can't see it preemptively and be able to work through it all. I'm thinking, for example, in my own life, you know, I was just recently remembering of my mother's birth story. In other words, when my grandmother was giving birth to her, there were sandbags used and forceps, and it was pretty traumatic. And then I'm thinking of what my birth was like, and I'm thinking of what my daughter's births were like. And now, with my daughter's kind of school age, making connections. But I didn't see it in order to be able to necessarily do that work before I got pregnant, before I gave birth. I love how you're linking this all together, Rebecca. I love it. That's exactly right. So yeah. let's go back to your mom's forceps birth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's heritable. What right. we know from the traumas that are induced, causing adversity to mice, separating from their mother's nurturing. The traumas like birth traumas, forceps traumas, labor traumas, uh, the baby gets ejected too early, the baby's in an incubator, mom takes a vacation too early, someone's hospitalized, you're hospitalized, all these things that we inherit the residue of this. Then when we look at what happens to us, often these traumas get re-engineered in our own birth, in mm-hmm. our own childhood. And even our children right. can carry the effects. You know, we see a three-generation link. So the answer is, yeah. <laughs> and I thank guess you. part thank of the consciousness. it together. Yeah. Well, and I think part of the consciousness is that now that I've pieced it together, even if I wasn't able to heal it before I had children. I can start talking about it with my daughters. Oh, beautiful. Right? So and so that's where the healing starts to happen. It's in that I'm consciousness so place. Glad. And mm-hmm. you told me they're school age, which means yes. they'll, let, they'll let you hold them and hug them and tell them the same words you'd say to a young fragmented self in you. You would hold them and say, you're safe. Mm-hmm. I've got you. It's okay. Go to sleep. Sleep on mommy. It's okay. Let's just watch TV and go to sleep things like that. Right. And you can do it right there. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, what this brings up, and it's also making me think a little bit about your story, Mark, that we're never really too old to do this healing work. 
We've never gotten to a place where it's too late. Exactly. You said it earlier, Becca, when you said the brain is plastic. And when we practice these new sensations and new feelings of these new experiences that we find meaningful, Mm -hmm. stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters in our brain, like dopamine and serotonin. We also stimulate the release of feel-good hormones like estrogen and oxytocin. And we even change gene expression. So what are we waiting for? (laughs) What are we waiting for? Let's practice, you know, the feeling um, better about ourselves, especially when we've had trauma, by practicing something meaningful. And that's what I teach in the book. I teach the reader how to do all these meaningful experiences that will heal the brain. And some of these meaningful experiences start with making the links through understanding and noticing your core language. Thank you. That's the other thing I do in the book. I teach the reader how to become a detective. Yeah. You're going to read the book. You're going to become a detective in your trauma language and your, you know, your verbal and your nonverbal trauma language. Here are the questions. I give you these in the book. You're going to find it, make the link, and then you're going to do these exercises or these practices that will heal your brain. Yeah, I just wrote it. So it would really help the reader. And that's why I wrote it. So many people were struggling with, how do I know what this stuff is? And I'm walking around with all this stuff. And what do I do about it? Well, I lo- one of the things that I really took away, and I think it's probably transformed a little bit of my practice, my therapy practice, is how I listen. You talk about these different lenses or different ways of listening, and that kind of more hazy kind of gazed way of listening. I noticed in, in one of my sessions recently with a client, all of a sudden, the word annihilated came up. And that word just kind of clued me in that there was something here to link into. And the deeper we started playing with that, the more we started getting into something. Rebecca, you're awesome. What a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, you know, it seems like we're peas in a pod in terms mm. of, you know, we, have, we share a similar vision. But right, it's that hazy looking where you listen without listening so carefully that you hear what's essential. So in other words, the deeper listening, like you're right, when you hear a word like annihilated, when you hear a word, absolutely, the alarm all goes off in you. Thank goodness I wasn't following the client's story. Thank God I was listening for the deeper trigger language, the trauma language that set off an alarm of, "Uh uh-oh, what did I just hear? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, I think, what some of these writing exercises are really helping people to do, because when we're just writing, we get into a place where we can start looking back and looking for those patterns on the reread. Right. I have people do these writing exercises and then reread it, just like you said, and look for the charged language. Right. So if you don't mind, what I would love to go right now with you is to talk a little bit about your own personal experience your own personal story, and maybe you can illustrate for our listeners how you've worked through some healing. Okay. (laughs) I'd be glad to. So a long, long, long time ago, (laughs) a long time ago, I had um, central serous retinopathy um, in my left eye, and I was losing a lot of vision, and I couldn't really see anything out of my left eye. And I went to doctors, and they told me that... um, you know, uh, you've stress. We don't know why. We don't know what. But I had symptoms that I couldn't explain. And um, I was diagnosed with this chronic form of retinopathy, and the doctors couldn't cure it. And because of the way it was progressing, I was told I was going to 
lose the vision in the other eye too, because I already had um, uh, scotomas in that eye. And I was pretty scared and desperate to find help. And I went on a search for healing. And, you know, the search really led me halfway around the globe, literally as far as Indonesia, where I learned from several wise masters and teachers who taught me some fundamental principles, one of which was the importance of healing my relationship with my parents. But before I could do that, I had to heal what stood in the way, which was inherited family trauma, which I didn't know at the time, but specifically the anxiety that I had inherited from all of my grandparents um, who were orphaned in some way. Three of them, three of my grandparents lost their mothers when they were babies. And the fourth lost her father when she was one. So ultimately she loses her mother too in the grief. So this anxiety was the re- that I had inherited. This was the real cause of my vision loss. So I'd inherited this feeling of being broken from my mother's love because not only had they, but my mother couldn't give what she didn't get. And this was passed down in my family. I remember being a small boy. Oh my gosh, Rebecca, I'm about five or six years old feeling panicked whenever my mother would leave the house. And I'd run crying into her room uh, with this feeling that I'd never see her again, mm-hmm. um, which was true for my grandparents who, who never saw their mothers again. And I would only ever smell that. So I run into her room and I pull open her drawers of scarves and nightgowns and, and breathing into her clothes crying because I'm thinking that all I'm going to have is her smell. Um, <laughs> that's the only thing that's going to be left, which is kind of crazy, but um, it was what I did. And 40 years later, I share this with my mom. Here's the punchline of the story. Um, I said, Mom, I used to cry into your stockings and your nightgowns. And she said, you did that too? I did that when my mom would leave the house. And then my sister reading the book said, you did that too, honey? I did that when mom would leave. I found out the family pattern. Oh, my goodness. Crying in my mother's <laughs> pantyhose you know it's like really strange but then after healing the break in the bond with my mother my eyesight came back which was crazy and I didn't expect it to and then I felt compelled to share these principles and ultimately I developed this method for healing the effects of inherited family trauma so if you were to boil it down for our listeners you know I think one of the things that you certainly start with is that sometimes the heart has to break in order to open and eventually from there, we begin to express our love for each other. Oh, thank so you that, for saying that. Yeah, well, the break is, is so important, isn't it? Thank you for reading my book so carefully. But yeah, it's true. You know, we have to get undefended because so many of us are so angry about what our parents did, and rightly so. What we, either the abuses, the things that happened to yeah. us that shouldn't, or the neglects, the things that right. we didn't get that we should have. And rightly so. We've got a case, but, but that case often when we hold it, as a defense, what it does is it blocks us from healing. It's a sweet-sided, two-sided sword, because on the one hand, it protects us from our parents hurting us again, but it also protects us from healing because we're now defended against love or defended against thinking that the next person's going to traumatize us too so we don't do well in our relationships. And really, we have to become undefended. And you know what I'd like to see is that people, if they can, you know, don't throw yourself in front of a moving train if your parents were still throwing knives at you. But if you're able to heal it in real life, that's helpful. If not, yeah. you do it inside 
your, your inner, inner image, world. Yeah. Your inner world. So at least you can say, the reason my mom couldn't love me, like I did, the reason my mom couldn't give me what I need, she's a daughter of an orphan. Yeah. Both her dad and her mom are orphans. So of course she couldn't. I like to say this. I love my mom. And I had a great mom, but she wasn't good at mothering. <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's the way I phrase it. She couldn't give me those things, but that didn't separate me from the love I could have right. or the love I could receive. There's a quote that we were talking about before we started recording today by Stephen and Andrea Levine. Oh, yeah. I think that might be a really nice place for us to land. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that, I think you're right. It's such a, let's end with that because it's so much gathers all the sort of talk that we're doing together. It's a beautiful quote. I didn't write this one by Stephen and Andrea Levine. The distance from your pain, your grief, your unattended wounds is the distance from your partner. Mm -hmm. I love that quote. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good call to action, right? To start really looking within. Yeah, it sure is. It's such a yeah. Yeah. Mark, yeah. I wonder if you would share with our listeners where they can find you. You know, your book, It Didn't Start With You, is a really wonderful place to begin learning more about your work. But how else can they find you? They could find me at www.markwithakwillin.com, W-O-L-Y-N-N.com. I'm also on Facebook. I think if your listeners go on Facebook, uh, Facebook slash Mark Wolin, they'll go to the page where I have all the articles. Um, I collect all the articles on epigenetics and um, inherited trauma. And oh, that's so good to know. I had yeah. no idea that you Oh, yeah. That. Oh, do that. If you go on that site, you'll see all the new studies that are out there. Um, it's a great resource. Plus, some kind. sometimes the quotes I have... Um, the quotes of wisdom or the quotes about relationships are on No, there. I'm going to geek out over there for a while. Yeah, yeah, definitely <laughs> go, go down my page. You'll see a lot yeah. of cool things. Thank you so much. Oh, Rebecca, really nice. So lovely to talk with you. You as well. There are so many important takeaways from this conversation that I really enjoyed. Everything from how we can combine our breath with our sensation and awareness, and then we can weave in meaning so that we can integrate in more positive experiences to how 70% of couples' problems have absolutely nothing to do with their partners, right? It like all goes back into this inherited stuff and how the work of opening is our own responsibility. I hope that you have really discovered some valuable insight and that you'll share it with loved ones. Again, I also would love to share with you the story that I just recently published on Long Reads. I dive in and share how some of my own family trauma has shown up in my life. It's called Liberation, A Love Story and a Reckoning. There's a link to read it in the show notes. Today's podcast is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes facilitates the workflow of mental health professionals through a robust, secure, and streamlined software. It's accessible wherever and whenever you need it. With fully integrated scheduling, notes, billing, electronic claims, and more, you'll have more time for what matters most, your clients. Therapy Notes is trusted by over 60,000 mental health professionals. They offer live phone support 73 hours a week, including Saturdays and usually in just under a minute. Get two months free of Therapy Notes and a free data import after signing up for a free trial by going to therapynotes.com and using the promo code CONNECTFULNESS. 
also wanted to let you know a little bit more about how you can work with me. I maintain my relationship therapy practice in New York, and I also run intensive couples retreat experiences. You can learn more about both at connectfulness.com. You can also join my connectfulness community. It's a virtual community and it's totally free. That's at connectfulness.com slash community. And if you're a therapist in private practice, then check out the Connectfulness Collective. Come root in with us over at connectfulness.com slash collective. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. A few extra little gratitudes. I'd like to thank Christy Hausler, my behind-the-scenes amazing podcasting team, Sarah and Chris Farris at Kidney Stone Studio for the delicious soundtrack music, Blue Rabbit Studios for the cover art, and please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com events.